0: thermal storage has some fundamental advantages. What material are you going to use to to store that heat? So we evaluated every single material that that we could think of. We looked at metals like iron and aluminum. We looked at every storage medium you you can think of. And again, we evaluated it on its cost and its performance. And what we found at the end of that process is that solid carbon has some really interesting advantages. The first is that it's very low cost. So it's available as a, a waste byproduct from other existing industries.
1: Hi, welcome to this week's edition of the Wharton Current. This is your host Shivani Shika, an MBA student at Wharton, and today Ned Downey and I are excited to dive into the fascinating world of energy storage. With renewable energy sources on the rise, the need for efficient and long-lasting energy storage solutions is more important now than ever. And that's where our special guest comes in. Today, we're chatting with Justin Briggs, co-founder of Antora Energy, a startup that's developing a solution to deliver zero emissions, heat, and electricity to industries that have historically relied on fossil fuels. With $50 million raised in Series A and a drive to decarbonize, let's explore the breakthrough Antora is bringing to the table. Welcome to today's episode of The Wharton Current. This is your host, Shivani Shikov, first year MBA student at Wharton.
2: Ned Downey, I'm a PhD student in public affairs at Princeton.
1: And today we're gonna to be discussing long duration energy storage, specifically thermal energy storage. It is my pleasure to welcome our guest, Justin Briggs, co-founder and COO of Antora Energy, a long duration thermal energy storage company. Antora was founded in 2018 and is set out to decarbonize heavy industry. The production of cement, steel, chemicals, and other manufacturing processes, which collectively makes up for a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. This industry represents the largest source of emissions and we'll let Justin, our guest here, explain how Antora Energy is making a dent. So Justin, thanks again for being here and welcome to the Wharton Current.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. So before we dive in, why don't you get us started by telling us more about your background and what led you to co-found Antora Energy?
0: Yeah, well, I grew up in Colorado in the mountains, just spending a lot of time out in nature. Uh, and so from a young age, I just developed a strong appreciation for the natural world, for, for being outside and for what nature has to offer. At the same time, I grew up in a family that really valued helping others. So it was kind of part of my family ethos that, you know, we had a lot of um, privilege growing up and it was kind of our responsibility to give back to the world and make sure that in the future, other people had the same benefits that that we were lucky enough to have. So, you know, between those two things, I kind of knew from a young age that I wanted to work on climate change. It was obvious to me that that was the biggest problem of our generation and that we just had to solve it. It just kind of felt self-evident. So I dedicated my early career to building the tools necessary to tackle that. I went to, to Berkeley and studied physics and applied mathematics and then did a PhD at Stanford in applied physics, where I focused on next generation renewable energy technologies. And you know, I thought those were good ways to sort of build the foundation for tackling big problems in climate and energy. Um, but by the time I finished grad school, I was really feeling the itch to do something more immediately impactful that would have a, a positive impact on human lives on a rapid timescale. And that's about when I met my one of my co-founders, Andrew, and I was pretty astonished that he shared more than anyone I'd ever met the same vision I had for my life, how I wanted to spend my finite hours on earth and, and what sort of impact we wanted to have on people's lives. And shortly thereafter, we met our second co-founder, David, and he also shared this, this same vision. And so we just started talking about what are the biggest problems in climate and energy? What are the biggest missing pieces for a future energy system that is equitable to everyone on earth, that gives everyone access to energy, but that also does it sustainably in a way that can continue for many generations? So we just started brainstorming ideas, and I can get into what the process looked like for how we actually developed the core concepts around Entora. But that was the the beginning of it. It was just us coming together and really connecting over a shared passion for improving human lives.
1: That's fascinating, Justin, and I love the passion in the space for a problem that's so urgent. So, as you mentioned in the intro, you know you're developing this solution for. Thermal energy storage. Would you mind just unpacking that for us exactly? What does that mean, and how is that different from other energy storage options on the market?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So, Entorus technology is a thermal storage technology, and it's also a long-duration storage technology. So, what does that mean? You know, these technologies, thermal storage and long-duration storage, are really all about competing with fossil fuels. That's why we're doing this, and the reason fossil fuels have been so dominant for so long. Is because they're really, really cheap and they're really available. When you need power, you can just flip a switch and you can get power from fossil fuels. When you need heat, you can flip a switch and you can get heat and you can do that really cheap. So to displace fossil fuels in a significant way going forward, you need something that is similarly inexpensive and similarly available. And that is exactly what long duration storage provides. That's exactly what thermal storage provides. So if you imagine operating in a high renewables environment, like we increasingly are, where there's a lot of wind and a lot of solar, you're going to have periods of time where there's not that much production, not that much sun out or wind blowing. And you need to be able to bridge those gaps when there's not power produced from those variable renewables. And long duration storage basically just means you have a battery that can discharge for a long enough time to convert that spiky variable generation into smooth on-demand, 100% firm energy for those who need it. So that's sort of why we care about long duration storage or what long duration storage means. But critically, to do this cost-effectively, you need to have a really, really inexpensive storage system. So in some ways, long duration storage is synonymous with super, super inexpensive storage. And, and that's where thermal storage comes in. We can we can talk more about this, but thermal storage is one of the cheapest ways you can store energy. So that's why we think it's a really promising pathway for delivering this reliable, on-demand energy, cost-effectively, cost-competitive with fossil fuels. And this is something we see as complementary with lithium-ion batteries, which typically serve a shorter duration need on the grid and play a really important role. And you know we hope that market expands and that lithium-ion batteries continue to flourish and that we can play a, a complementary role going
2: forward. Justin, I know you're, you're bullish on thermal storage in particular. And you know, we're actually pretty interested in it too. We had another guest last year of Rondo Energy join also from a thermal energy storage background. But you can dive a little bit more into why thermal in particular. I think you've kind of described some of the advantages of it, but there are certainly other companies that are thinking about long duration electricity storage, for instance, or maybe long duration storage in the form of fuel. What's special about thermal?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love this question. This was one of the sort of central questions we asked ourselves when we started the company. Yeah. When we started Entora, we basically started from a technology neutral or a technology agnostic space and just said, problem is we need to figure out a way to store a lot of energy for very cheap. That's, that's the challenge. And the pathway is unclear. So we basically said, let's evaluate every possible way we can think of to store energy. And we have to apply certain filters to that, you know, it has to be globally scalable. So it can really make a dent in this problem. It has to be really inexpensive. It has to be long lived, has to have robust supply chains. There's enough material available to do this, you know, all these constraints we applied, but with this problem centric lens, we evaluated a bunch of different ways to store energy. So we looked at mechanical storage, electrochemical storage, flow batteries, gravitational hydrogen flywheels, you know, you name it, we evaluated it. Um, we just spent months doing these techno-economic deep dives on all these different technologies, just building simple models to understand their performance and their cost and stacking them up against one another. We tried to do this with as open a mind as possible without you know, any notion of what pathway would, would be the winner. And what we found at the end of this process is that thermal energy storage in particular really kind of bubbled up to the top of the list, no matter how we sliced it. And that's for a couple of key reasons. The first reason is just cost. When you're doing thermal storage, you just take a cheap material and you get it hot. That's all you're doing, right? You're not running a chemical reaction. There's not a phase change. There's not anything really complex happening. It's just get cheap stuff hot. So it's pretty hard to beat it on the sort of fundamental economics. And we can talk more about the materials that we're using, but There are some incredible materials out there that are already widely used in industry that are very inexpensive and have excellent physical properties that make really good candidate materials for thermal storage. So the first thing is just straight up cost. The second piece though, was a little bit surprising to us and it's around energy density. We didn't think energy density was gonna be an important factor when we started a stationary energy storage company. Obviously, if you're doing a transportation application, you wanna put this on a car, you really care about the energy density because you're space and weight limited. But we thought if this is just going to sit there next to a factory or plugged into the grid, it can be kind of big. It doesn't really matter. It turns out we were wrong on that. And we were wrong because of some surprising pieces that, that fit into the bigger picture here. The first is that when you are building a technology around cost, when you're optimizing for low cost, it turns out that every little detail matters. And you only really see this when you start really getting to the details of how you actually build the system. And so, for example, When you're building an energy storage system and you want it to be vastly less expensive than a lithium ion battery, you start to really care how much it costs to pour a foundation or to run piping and wiring or to build a shell that just contains the thing, a shell made of steel, or how big the balance of plant is in general. And all these factors add up and add significant cost to the system. So. Having an energy dense system, having a a highly compact system levers down all of these peripheral costs, makes the whole system physically smaller. And that that means that not just the sort of fundamentals of the economics are good around the cost of the material using to store the energy, but the actual installed cost and the ongoing operations and maintenance costs are lower. And that's a key piece for, for actually getting to low deployment costs. And then the final piece I'll mention around... Energy density is just for siting, You know, you're not actually in an unconstrained environment. You have some constraints on where you can put these things. You're in a, a dense industrial environment, for example, and you can't have an infinite footprint for having so having something that's small and compact allows you to site more easily at a customer facility. And so when you take these things together, the fundamentals of the material cost and the actual installed cost due to the really high energy density that you can achieve with thermal storage, it starts to look like the leading option. So happy to talk through why thermal storage allows you to get to those really high energy densities, but that was sort of the the key set of realizations that led us towards thermal energy storage.
1: So you spoke about different materials that you probably would have experimented with before deciding on the key material that you're probably using for the Antora's energy storage product. Would love to hear about how you came to that decision, especially with these other constraints. Um, in 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 your vision about energy density, cost effectiveness, as well as durability.
0: Yeah, this this could be a long conversation. I can talk to you about carbon all day long. It's a very cool material. So when we were doing this this process of kind of doing a, a breadth first search of all the different ways you can store energy, and then you know we down selected to thermal storage, and then within thermal storage, there's still a lot of options. So we kind of repeated that same process and said, okay, thermal storage has some fundamental advantages. What material are you going to use to, to store that heat? So we evaluated every single material that that we could think of. You know, we looked at metals like iron and aluminum. We looked at alumina, magnesia, calcium silica, other metal oxides. Looking, you know, we looked at every every storage medium you, you can think of. And again, we evaluated it on its cost and its performance. And what we found at the end of that process is that solid carbon has some really interesting advantages. The first is that it's very low cost, so it's available. As a a waste byproduct from other existing industries. And there is a tens of millions of tons per year existing supply chain for blocks of carbon, again, for other industries that we can tap into. So it's already been scaled up so that the supply chain is large, the costs are low. So the, the sort of fundamentals there are good. But what was really cool is when we started digging into the physical properties of carbon. So carbon is an amazing material. Diamond is carbon, graphite in your pencil lead is carbon. There's carbon nanotubes, there's graphene, there's so many different fun things you can do with carbon. So, from an engineering nerd perspective, it's an incredibly cool material to be working on. But for us, the things that really stood out were first, it it has very high thermal conductivity, which is great for a thermal storage system because you'd like the heat to be able to be distributed throughout the thermal storage system evenly. And having high thermal conductivity allows that heat to, to flow smoothly through the system. But the second thing, and even more importantly, is that. Solid carbon is incredibly thermally robust, so it does not melt at ambient pressure. It goes straight to gas phase and it doesn't do that until over 3000 degrees Celsius, which for reference, that's like half the temperature of the surface of the sun. So we're talking really, really high temperatures. So it's one of the most thermally and mechanically robust materials that is available industrially today. And that allows you to get a couple different advantages. The first is that high energy density because we're swinging this carbon over a delta T. So when we charge it up, we heat it up. And when we discharge it, we cool it off. And the larger that delta T, that temperature swing, the more energy you can store per mass of carbon. So because carbon is so thermally robust and can tolerate such high temperatures, you can have a large delta T, a large temperature swing, and therefore a lot of energy stored per quantity of material. So that is is very helpful for the reasons that we already discussed, driving down the system cost and making a small system. But equally important, I think, is because you're able to store energy at such high temperatures and we're storing above 1500 degrees Celsius, you're able to supply heat to really hard to decarbonize industries like steel, cement, uh, lime, glass, petrochemicals. These are typically thought to be really hard to decarbonize because the temperatures they need are above a thousand degrees Celsius. And there's just not that many materials that can hold heat and deliver heat at those temperatures. As a last thing, carbon also has a a really high specific heat capacity. So combined with the large Delta T, that's what really gives you that incredibly high energy density. So all in all, it's physically, it's got superlative properties, which we were really blown away by, especially when combined with the cost and the existing supply chain.
2: I love this. I feel like we've gotten, in some ways, we're following the same kind of journey that you had and figuring out how to get to this product from the whole landscape of your different options down to all right, thermal storage down to all right, thermal storage using carbon. I feel like we also owe our listeners just To walk through how this product works, kind of alluded to it in these discussions, but you just walk through that whole process of how the heat goes from production to storage to consumer in your product. And is it tied to green electricity or are you guys able to use it in a lot of different use cases, maybe transitional ones as the market moves in that direction?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the way the, the product works is is really fun. So I'll walk you through it. We take electricity from any source. So to your point, um, it can be from wind, it can be from solar, it could be from a nuclear power plant, it could be from hydroelectric. We're agnostic to the source of electricity. Ideally, it would be a, a zero carbon form of electricity so that we're reducing emissions, but we can take a, any form of power. So we use that electricity, ideally, when there's excess wind and solar generation, and we use that to resistively heat blocks of solid carbon. So that process looks basically just like how your toaster works. You just run electricity through a resistor, it heats up. And instead of heating your toast, in this case, it heats our blocks of carbon to very, very high temperatures. So these blocks of carbon are stored in an insulated shell. So they're not leaking that heat back to the environment. So just like your coffee thermos keeps your coffee hot, the insulated shell keeps our hot carbon hot. There's also an inert atmosphere, like an argon or a nitrogen atmosphere, so that you don't oxidize the carbon. So it's just an ambient pressure of, of inert atmosphere inside the inside the steel shell containing the system. Okay, so now comes the fun part. How do you extract that stored energy? So you've got these carbon blocks. As I mentioned before, we're storing, we're storing energy at very, very high temperatures. So the blocks are sitting there above 1500 degrees Celsius. And at these temperatures, if you were to kind of open up the system and look inside, well, you wouldn't want to do that because it would melt your face. That would be bad. But what you would what you'd see if you could was a very, very glowing hot block of carbon. It's glowing white hot, like a light bulb filament. So what we actually do to discharge the system is we, we do that. We open a little port, a little door on the side of the system, and that allows this intense beam of thermal radiation, this thermal glow to emit out the side of the system. And there's two things we can do with that. One, you can let that thermal glow basically deliver process heat directly to a customer. So instead of you know burning natural gas to raise steam to produce heat for a process, we can use this beam of high intensity light to do that. The second thing we can do is take that, that same beam of light and shine it on a modified photovoltaic panel. So this is just like a solar cell, just like a solar cell that captures light from the sun and converts it to electricity. But our photovoltaic panels are modified so that they're really good at capturing that thermal glow from the hot carbon and converting that into electricity. So in this way, we can use a simple, compact, solid state semiconductor device, just the photovoltaic panel, just like your solar cell. And we can in one step capture that thermal glow and convert it directly to electricity. So, you know, stepping way back again, the technology looks like electricity goes in, you store it as heat and on the way out, you can either deliver industrial heat or electricity
2: on demand. This is maybe a question for some more technical listeners, but I'm kind of curious about the efficiencies you all get from the from using PV at that step. I think, you know, solar cells are maybe going to capture in sort of in lab settings, maybe 30, up to around 30% so of incoming energy from solar radiation. What kind of efficiencies are you guys able to get in taking the energy that you've stored in these blocks and turning it into electricity? And how does that compare to the efficiencies on the process heat side?
0: A great question. So this was actually a huge missing piece when we started the company. Is that the question of how we turn the stored heat back into electricity wasn't clear. There's a lot of possible ways you can do that. When you know your mind would first go to a conventional heat engine like a steam turbine or an organic, organic Rankine cycle or a gas turbine. And those are all possible options, but they've got pretty severe limitations around upfront capital cost, ongoing maintenance costs, and efficiency. So we started seeking an alternative heat engine for converting that stored heat into electricity. We came upon thermophotovoltaics, which is this this photovoltaic device that absorbs thermal radiation and converts it to electricity. We came upon this because one of our advisors, Dick Swanson, who's the founder of SunPower, had actually worked on this technology way back in the late 70s and early 80s. And he, amongst pioneering the the solar PV field, he was a pioneer in this field as well and had done some of the really early work on, on thermophotovoltaics or TPV. And at that time, he demonstrated 29% conversion efficiency from heat to electricity. And that was around 1980 when the solar photovoltaic conversion record was 16%. So in 1980, Dick Swanson was able to almost double the solar PV conversion efficiency by using this thermo PV configuration. And that record of 29% stood for almost 40 years. And so we, we looked at that and we said, a lot has changed in, in photovoltaics over the last 40 years. And Dick Swanson told us the same. He said, you guys should take a look at this again. And so we started looking into it and we realized that with the many billions of dollars and decades of R&D that have been poured into making photovoltaics lower cost and higher efficiency, that there was a lot of a lot of new white space to be explored there. And to your point, the, the fundamental limit for a single junction solar cell is about 33%. You can't convert sunlight into electricity with higher efficiency than that 33%. But you can do better than that in a thermo photovoltaic application. And so what we did is we said, let's take the the best materials and the best device architectures that exist today that have been developed with lots of work from the solar industry, and let's apply those to the thermo photovoltaic realm. And what we're able to do now is instead of uh, being limited to that 33% conversion efficiency, like solar PV is, we can actually exceed that. And we've now demonstrated over 40% conversion efficiency from heat into electricity. And that's the world record for any solid state heat engine converting heat into electricity. And the reason that we're able to do that, and that you can't do that in a solar PV application is because our TPV modules, just like a solar PV module, they're only able to use a portion of the light that hits them. They can't use all the frequencies of light But in a solar application, the unusable frequencies of light are just lost. They're just wasted. But in our application, we can actually reflect those back to the hot carbon where they can be reabsorbed and their energy can be recuperated instead of wasted. So you can't do this in a solar application because... The sun doesn't care if you bounce photons back to it, but the hot carbon does care. It stays hotter when you do that. So using this trick and several other sort of more recent advances in semiconductor engineering, we've now been able to demonstrate over 40%. And so that's that's a key part of the technology is that high efficiency conversion of heat into electricity. And then to your last question, um, the the thermal discharge side is, is much more efficient. On a, on a round-trip basis, we're able to go electricity into thermal energy out at over 90% efficiency.
2: That makes a lot of sense. I got One more technical follow-up question, then we're going to get back to the business stuff. But on the input side as well of thermal energy, that is, you guys use electricity and resistive heating to generate heat that then you store. Is there any interest? I know that you've mentioned how in your early explorations, you've got a lot of interest from the industrial sector that is maybe further ahead on looking for thermal energy storage than the electricity sector right now. Is there any interest in say sort of traditional fossil fuels as like using basically your thermal storage as a way to hedge on traditional fossil fuels? So like a way to do storage so that companies can hedge against natural gas prices being high or low at a given period of time. And so skipping the whole resistive heating process, but just directly sort of storing it in, in your blocks or is the resistive heating sort of pretty much like hundred percent basically of what you guys are supplying?
0: Yeah. So you, you could do that. That would be a possible use case. It's not one that's of great interest to us. There's also not a lot of interest in the industry in doing that. I think one thing there's a small amount of interest in is using waste heat to charge the system, the industrial waste heat. There's some benefit to doing that for sure. You can, you know, it's the overall efficiency of industrial process by capturing that waste heat and storing it. But it's much less scalable than just using electricity to charge this thing. Wind and solar are growing incredibly rapidly and are pretty clearly going to be the energy source of the future. And it's pretty easy to do resistive heating. It's technically simple. You know, it really is quite analogous to a toaster coil. So we really view that as the most cost-effective and most scalable option for storing energy. I will say there is an interesting use case that is similar to what you mentioned, which is supporting nuclear power. So you know a lot of the challenges with nuclear come around ramping up and down. It's not great to ramp a nuke up and down. They don't love that from an operations and maintenance perspective. And so it's hard to respond to market signals. But if you could buffer the output of a nuke with a thermal storage system, you could eliminate that problem. So you could run the nuclear power station at its you know, high efficiency set point where it likes to operate and then use the the storage to buffer the output onto the grid or whoever you're delivering power to. So you could use it in in that use case in a a similar way to what you're describing. But generally, we we think that putting electricity into this thing is going to be the most cost-effective and the most scalable option.
1: Yeah, you elaborated a lot on the various use cases. Would love to hear about most immediate use case as a business model. What kind of market segments are you guys particularly targeting? And what exactly about these segments make the product very attractive?
0: Yeah. So I think one exciting thing about our technology is that it is designed to be able to deliver industrial energy across the board to basically every single manufacturing vertical that exists. So, you know, long-term we plan to be selling to the chemicals industry, food and beverage, agriculture, pulp and paper, automotive, mining, you know, you, you name it, it's inbounds for us. And that was by design. We decided to make a technology that we thought was scalable to match the scale of the need. So, that's a really important part. Early on, we're seeing a lot of traction from folks in the chemicals industry. There's some pretty low hanging fruit as far as decarbonizing their heat use, and they can see our system plugging in pretty easily to, to meet that need. So, I think that's probably going to be one of the big segments that we attack first. It's important to note that we have a, a really exciting competitive advantage because of the temperatures that we're storing heat at. As I mentioned before, we're storing heat above 1500 degrees Celsius. And that allows us to deliver energy to industries like steel, cement, lime, glass, petrochemicals, industries that operate, you know, above 1500 degrees Celsius, in some cases, certainly above 1000 degrees Celsius. And, you know, when we go out and talk to our customers in these markets, they're telling us that they're not really seeing any other option to cost effectively deliver heat at these temperatures. So we're pretty excited about those verticals long-term as far as things that don't really have another solution for decarbonization. And that's exactly what we're targeting. What are the the hard problems that wouldn't be solved if we weren't working on them?
1: Yeah. I would love to hear more about these industries that you mentioned that rely on extreme heat, chemical, cement. A lot of them operate on extremely thin margins. So cost competitiveness for any alternative solution for them becomes very critical. How's internalized technology on this cost curve and how does it currently compete and how do you see that competing in the future but fossil fuels or natural gas.
0: Yeah, this was another one of the big questions that we asked ourselves when we were starting the company. Probably the the hardest criteria we had placed on our search process when we were looking for the ideal storage system was around cost. And in particular, we had to see a pathway for the storage technology being cost competitive on a raw economic basis with fossil fuels. So we truly believe that if you're going to displace fossil fuels long term, and if you're going to do it rapidly especially you need to have something that just wins on pure economics so our technology was built around that premise by design but to your question Shivani we're not going to be there on our first deployment a lot of the customers we're working with initially are customers that are willing to pay a small green premium for having zero carbon energy that's a signal that folks you know care enough about this problem for whatever reason maybe it's shareholder pressure or pressure from the C-suite or just, you know, wanting to hedge against fossil fuel volatility. Um, But there are customers today that are willing to pay a small premium over fossil energy prices, but very soon we believe that green premium is going to go away and we're going to need to be just competing on raw economics. So long-term cost parity with fossil fuels is where
2: we'll be. Does the IRA help at all on the green premium? I feel like it's sort of getting brought up in all sorts of different contexts with clean tech about making that green premium work for a larger market. What does it mean for you guys?
0: Yeah. The Inflation Reduction Act is huge for every single player in the climate tech space, but it is certainly huge for us. The first thing that's very exciting is just the production and investment tax credits for wind and solar. You know, Wind and solar electricity are the input for many different processes that will ultimately support decarbonization, including ours. So that benefits everyone across the board. The second one I'll call out though, is a provision called 45X, which is the Advanced Manufacturing Production Tax Credit It basically provides support for manufacturing a bunch of different climate technologies, including wind and solar, and very importantly, energy storage. So this is absolutely a historic investment in cleantech, and it will accelerate our ability to stop climate change dramatically, and certainly a huge thing for Antora.
1: Yeah, the IR has definitely been a huge tailwind for the industry in general, but would love to talk about also financing for Antora Energy. You guys have had great success with you know, the VC community having raised over $50 million over the last couple of rounds and recently closing in on a big Series A investment with some of the biggest VC funds. Tell us about that process. What did you think were the standout features of Antora that helped getting VCs on board?
0: You know, I think the the first thing is the simple thing that I just said before, which is that we have a technology that is just going to beat fossil fuels on raw economics. The VC community can look at how big the fossil industry is right now, and they can see, you know, trillions of dollars, and they see a pathway to replacing that with something that is climate positive, that doesn't have any emissions, but that has the same economic scale. So- it's just an economic bet that they're making and it's a good one. So that's that's the first and most fundamental thing. The thing that r- was really exciting to our investors and was also a filter we used to choose which investors you know we really wanted to work closely with was our mission. Our mission is to stop climate change for the future of humanity. And that's, you know, that might sound overly broad or kind of generic because it's such a, a big statement, but it's really, really important to us. And it's central to everything that we do. And I think that acts as a beacon that attracts like-minded people. So yeah, our investors want to make a lot of money when we're successful, but they also want to stop climate change. So having that alignment on the core purpose of our company, it was really, really important. And I think being really clear-eyed about that and just going in straight away saying that this is why we exist as a company. I think that was attractive to investors. And I think that made us appealing as a, as a team to work with. Related to that, I'll say our core values, I think were also really important when attracting good investors and investors that we wanted to work with for the long haul. You can go to our website and see our core values. We've got some stuff written about them, but I'll call out one in particular, which is built with humility and openness. You know, Humility and openness are incredibly important to us. We don't believe we have all the answers. We want to learn from others. We want critical feedback. We want to be transparent and open about what we're doing. And I think that level of, of openness and humility that we had, I think it built a lot of trust with our investors. It showed them that we were willing to you know, completely open our books from a, a financial perspective, but also a technology perspective and show them exactly what we're doing and get their feedback. I think we've also derived a lot of benefit from that approach. We've learned a lot and we've made changes, of course, in the past because of feedback we've received from being open. And then I think maybe the third thing I'll say on that front is our team. When investors come to do diligence, they want to meet our team and, and know our team. And I think that was a huge benefit for us in the fundraising process and will continue to be so. I feel so incredibly proud of our team and just honored and privileged to be working with them every day. They're absolutely the best in the world at what they do, but that's almost table stakes for stopping climate change. Like If you're going to be tackling climate change, you better have the best people. But what's really incredible is that in addition to being brilliant and just ridiculously hardworking, they're truly just the most kind, thoughtful, respectful, caring, fun, and good-hearted people you'll ever meet. I wake up every morning honestly thinking, is this is this real? Do I really get to do this for my work? Can it be this good? Um, and that's really because of the people that I work with. So that makes it really fun and special for me to do this work, but it, it also, I think, attracts great investors and makes the fundraising process a lot easier.
1: Great to hear, it, Justin. And clearly this technology is very versatile with a lot of use cases, right? So you mentioned just with industrial facilities, how it's going to disrupt that industry. You mentioned nuclear use cases. One of the biggest issues that we've been seeing is grid transmission. And with the intermittency that we see with a lot of renewable resources, you know, that doesn't necessarily support ongoing electricity that we could get. And so with this product that offers long duration energy storage, how does Antora Energy think about potentially partnering up with utilities to be able to solve that challenge?
0: Yeah, transmission is truly one of the big ones in the coming decades. When we started Antora, we actually looked at transmission as well. And we thought, you know, should we start a company to try to solve that problem? And I think we felt that it was also incredibly important, much like storage, but that it might be harder to solve than storage. We liked energy storage because it seemed like there was a pathway to resolving some of those transmission constraints uh, without the difficulty of building out new transmission. So while we will certainly need to build out the transmission system extensively, I do think having long duration storage on the grid will alleviate that problem considerably. So one of the benefits of having a highly citable compact system is that you can put it in a lot of different places. And that means you could put it at the generation center next to a wind and solar farm, or you could put it at a load center, or you could put it somewhere else. Um, So by having this flexibility on where you site the storage, you can actually do a lot to alleviate those transmission constraints. So, you know, when there's way too much solar power in the middle of the day in Southern California, you can just soak that up at the point of generation, relieve the, the transmission congestion, and then deliver it later in the day or later in the week when that power is needed. So we certainly think alleviating the transmission challenge is a big role for storage in the future.
2: Yeah, it definitely aligns with some of the research that my colleagues at Princeton have been working on. Nisha Manocha, in particular, has done some modeling on the impact that storage can have on alleviating transmission bottlenecks. And as we see the permitting challenges in transmission, just as you described, finding alternatives to having to go through those permitting battles is, you know, it's the kind of thing that you can save maybe 15, 20% of the transmission bill that you need if you think about storage. That's in the short duration storage context. I can't speak so much long duration, but you can see, I can imagine some increasing benefits from that. I want to wrap up with just talking about something that's really come through throughout this discussion, which is this personal commitment to the climate battle that you have. This is clearly pretty central to what you do. Can you just talk about that a little bit more, how it motivates you and how you think it should motivate other people?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For me personally, and I know for my co-founders, Andrew and David, the reason we're working on a company together is because we want to help people. We want to improve human well-being on earth. When we started the company, we we looked at a bunch of different stuff and uh, working on climate is one of the biggest levers, potentially the single biggest lever on improving human lives across the globe. And that that's really important to us. We truly believe that you only have so many hours in this world and you better dedicate those to something that is meaningful and valuable. And, you know, what better thing to tackle than the problem of our generation? So, you know, we believe that building a better energy storage system to deliver zero carbon energy to industry and the grid is the fastest path to having that impact. Um, But there's lots of different ways you you can get involved with climate and energy. So I would say one of the biggest questions over the next decade is how will young people entering the workforce spend their time? What career choices will they make? And, you know, you have the choice right now to go and work on a bunch of different stuff. But, you know, I would encourage people who are listening to really think like when you're at the end of your life, when you're sitting down and talking with your grandkids about what you accomplished and they're asking you, you know, what did you do in the 2020s when you knew that the world was on fire and our world was being destroyed by climate change? What did you work on? Have an answer to that question, you know, like make them proud. So I would say, you know, go out there and tackle climate change.
1: Thanks, Justin. This has been an incredible fascinating conversation so really appreciate having you here for our listeners who feel inspired by this product how can they learn more about your company and find out more information
0: yeah well certainly you can go to our website which is just antorenergy.com we've got some information there check out the open jobs posting if you're if you're looking for a way to get involved with climate and energy you can also check us out on linkedin and twitter
1: great thanks so much justin appreciate you being here
0: yeah my pleasure thank you guys so much
2: that's our show for today thanks again to justin for joining us now if you like this conversation do spread the good word online you can find us and tag us at the wharton current on instagram and at wharton current on twitter and look out for our next episode later this month so stay tuned